I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Sarah Century. I'm your host, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm Essie Fleenor. I'm Sarah Century. So we have a question from this dumb rumpus on Twitter. Whose podcast is Artifacts of Infinity? Yes, Artifacts of Infinity. Go check it out. So this dumb rumpus says, just finished the fridging episode. Loved it. Thank you so much. Can you think of a story or a few stories where a woman character is killed and other characters react, but it isn't fridging? Like a quote unquote, how to handle character death well kind of thing. This is a surprisingly difficult question. Absolutely. Because even when their death is handled well, there's problems to it. Like we were just talking pretty recently about Crisis on Infinite Earths and how sexualized Supergirl looks in her death scene, even though it is this incredibly powerful moment. Yeah. So that's a beautiful and just so impactful death scene. But it also has kind of a visual element to it where you're like, really? So... I think that there's ones, though. What's the first one that comes to mind for you? For me, it's actually from Bitch Planet, and it is 
Mako Maki. Oh, yeah. She's killed at the end of, like, the first arc. And it is devastating. Yeah. It is unexpected. And it's, like, a really important moment in the storyline because it's what really defines what's wrong in this society. Right. It's, like, they think for this moment that if they play Metatron— they will be able to earn their freedom. At first, they're, like, not convinced. They're like, this is rigged. And then they figure out how to, like, make it fair, quote, unquote. Mm-hmm. And then her neck is snapped yeah. on the field by a guard right, from the opposite team. And it's just, they freak out. And, of course, of course. And it's just so devastating. The characters all react with such violent emotions and reactions. And of course they would. Of course they would. And you really feel the anguish. And that's what Bitch Planet is about. Bitch Planet is about how women, particularly Asian women, particularly black women, how their bodies are commodified and how trans people are treated in this society that believes in a binary where women are submissive to men. And it's meant to be painful. And it's meant to also be a reckoning. I really firmly see it as a reckoning on behalf of Deconic with her privilege. White women do horrible things in Bitch Planet. They do horrible things to other white women, to women of color. It's terrible. This happened too also because Mako was determined to play Metatron. They didn't want to put her on the team because she's tiny. Right. And so Metatron's about weight, so you can have like a certain number of players on the field, but based on their weight. And so Mako could be on the field at the same time as Penny Roll. And Penny Roll is huge, awesome. Oh, oh, I love Penny Roll with my whole heart. And so they, they could have Mako be super fast and Penny could take a bunch of guards. And so Mako decides to be on the team. Mako's like, I am how you win. I am how we get off this fucking horrible planet. And so she's in control of her fate. Right. And so though her death is tragic and proof of how brutal this world is, it is based on a decision she made. Yeah, and, and there's me, a triumph to it. Yes. And, and to me, like, a real important aspect is did the character make the decisions that lead to their death? Right. I think a defining feature of fridging, Alexandra DeWitt is not a character who makes decisions. Right. She is used as a prop to motivate Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Mako Maki is not killed to motivate anybody. Right. It's she, a demotivator, it, it, if anything. It fucks but, them. They are, like, yeah. so depressed afterwards that they're just like, what are we— like? Oh my God. Yeah. And I think those are the death is actually felt, right? Which is a big thing with the biggest problem with bridging is it's always, oh, now he's sad for three issues, but then he's over it and it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. As soon as he defeats the villain, he's back to normal and dating someone else. And it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. 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 That's what sucks about it so bad. So I would say our friends, the good, the bad, and the basic podcast have brought up a few times that Joyce Summers on Buffy, that her death was handled really well. I agree with that because that episode is devastating. Devastating. They do such a great job at withholding a lot of the like sound they would usually put to make the show funny or or softer or or thrilling. And so there's just a lot of broken heartedness. Yeah. In a really tender way. And it's something that's going to continue to affect these characters for the rest of the series. Yes. So that's something that's really important about it too, right, is the longevity of grief. We don't see a lot of that. We have character deaths that occur. In comics, they can just bring people back and show sometimes they can do that too. 
But it's not even just like the bringing it back that's the most problematic part. It's the fact that it doesn't matter that they left, that they died. These big things happened and people just kind of get over it. (laughs) Yeah, well, and I think that's an interesting thing for a show that has killed its protagonist twice, Right. right? Like death is a very common companion in Buffy. Right. But then... Joyce's death is given so much weight. Right. I, I do love that Buffy's deaths are always given consequence, right? Because she's a sure. slayer. Yeah. So that like, something has to happen. <laughs> but I really think the way they handled Joyce, and I love that, you know, Buffy tried to find, even when Joyce got sick, you know, Buffy tried to find supernatural reasons because mm-hmm. she wanted something she could fight so she could protect her mom, you know? Like that feels like such a humanizing moment for Buffy, but it's like Joyce doesn't get sick because of Buffy. Right. Joyce is sick because she has a brain tumor. And it's totally irreversible. There's yeah. nothing that Buffy can do. It just is final and complete yeah. and done. The opposite of Tara's death. Where exactly. There was no reason. <laughs> Completely but. meaningless, like disconnected from who she was as a character. She didn't know Warren. Like, like had nothing to nothing, do with her. Nothing. Yeah. And it's her first night back in like her home. Oh my God. Like it's just the layers of horrible that that death is, I think that Joyce's is allowed to be, again, like tender. Yeah. The other one that I thought of, because I think that it's a pretty good example also from TV, is Killjoy's Potter. Potter is this significant female character who is like a poor little rich girl kind of character. Mm -hmm. And she really does like figure out who she is in the course of her storyline. And she decides to use her privilege to help the people on this planet of minors. And as she's like sitting down to sign this document with this other powerful woman, she signs it and then the woman stabs her and kills her. And it's because she put herself on the line. They know she's capable of murder at this point. She has killed other people. And it sucks. It sucks. It totally sucks when Potter dies. I think it should suck when a character dies. It should really just suck because it sucks when people die. Yeah. It sucks. It's just like part of life. But it sucks, and I hate when it's treated so lightly. And I think in the solo movie, Val dies, and her husband, her companion, her business partner, her friend is like, well, guess I'm going to go on another heist. It cheapens everything about the story, about the character, all of that. And I think that in every way that that's true, like Potter's the opposite, as is Joyce, as is, again, Mako Maki and Bitch Planet. You had another example. I think that in the X-Men's Inferno series, that whole time period, they had two deaths in that story. One was Ilyana Rasputin, who's going to be in the New Mutants movie. That's magic. So Ilyana's whole arc was just awful. She is with her brother Colossus. They are on a pretty standard X-Men mission. She gets pulled into Limbo Dimension, which is essentially hell, by a creepy older dude named Belasco. She watches the X-Men either die or become transformed by the evil of Limbo. So Kitty Pride is there. She becomes actually very cat-like. She grows fur and a tail. And she is vicious to Ilyana, despite how much she loved Ilyana, because to her, Ilyana is just this relic of who she used to be, basically. Wow. And she can't live with that. And so her and Ilyana have this incredibly complicated relationship where Ilyana 
wants to see her as her best friend, but Limbo has changed Kitty Pride and made her be this, like, terrible creature. And it does it to everybody there, except for Storm, who becomes, like, a wizard. And so (laughs) Storm's like, exception. Yeah, so Storm helps raise Ilyana and train her, but Belasco eventually kills Storm and ends up with magic. And so magic is just abused really badly and gaslit and terrorized by this guy who's essentially king of Limbo or whatever. And whenever she gets back to the 616, her regular world, she is 14 years old. They just saw her and she was six. And nobody knows really what happened to her there. And she doesn't talk about it. But everybody sees that there's this new kind of demonic energy around her. Mm -hmm. So her story just goes along and along where it's basically her being kind of evil inside and having these like evil motivations and things like she also was twisted by limbo and having to rein it in because she loves her friends so much. And that's a a lot of what her arc in New Mutants is. So once we make it to Inferno, that's whenever Limbo comes to Earth, right? There's there's literally toasters that come alive and attack people (laughs) and just demon toasters and couches. And it's so fun. And all of the appliances, like refrigerators with faces on them, come after people. And (laughs) it's so fun. I love that trope so much. Oh, yeah. The appliances come alive. In a comic, especially. Just so, so good. But that is amazing. And that whole story is great because Ilyana has this arc where she just goes and does things that are questionable and she feels like she's always losing control of herself a little bit to her darker side, the dark child, the soul sword, all of that. But she, in the end, chooses to be good to sacrifice herself. That is why she goes, right? And that's the end of her story effectively for a really long time. She eventually comes back, of course, but she's turned into a child again and then she dies with the legacy virus and then she's dead for a really long time. She comes back eventually. It doesn't get better for her. It's like a really hard time. But she does the right thing and it's she chooses her friends and she chooses to fight for things that she believes in. And I think that that was very important and it happened alongside Madeline Pryor's death. And Madeline Pryor is like the clone of Jean Grey that Cyclops married whenever Jean Grey was oh at the bottom. Cyclops. No, he's a wreck. But and he's super a wreck to Madeline. Yeah. He leaves he's her. He walks right out on her. And she's a kid. Cable. He's later uh. to become Cable. He causes that whole situation. So Madeline has all of the reasons to become Midia of the X-Men, and she becomes Midia of the X-Men. Yeah. She tries to kill her own child and, you know, tries to kill all of the X-Men, and she becomes a goblin queen and is oh a badass. God. She has, like, you It's know, a cool costume, right? Oh, God. It's a bonkers costume. It has a lot of underboob happening and stuff. <laughs> uh, the other day, I was thinking about how more people should cosplay as goblin queen and goblin prince because goblin queen has this outfit where you're like, that's kind of sexist people, like, what's going on? But then her boo of the time, Havoc, wears the same outfit, so he's wearing tiny little brief and, like, all of that. So it's funny because it's, like, at the beginning you're, oh, God, that's really sexist. I wonder why she's wearing that. And then Havoc comes out of the bedroom wearing the same thing, (laughs) like, ready to approach his day, you know, and just go through life. Um, dressed as the Goblin Prince. There's just something really funny about it. But I was like, I really wish that people would cosplay those two more. And then I remembered all of the reasons why you would never do that. (laughs) For instance, if you have a child at all, you probably don't want to cosplay as Madeline Pryor. That would probably send a wrong message to a lot of people. Um, (laughs) So, But Madeline, in the very end, ends up 
basically getting merged with Jean Grey's consciousness. So what that is, is the Phoenix, Madeline, and Jean are three different entities. And the way that Madeline is defeated is basically Jean being like, get in here, you. And they they merge consciousness. (laughs) Get in here, you. (laughs) Gal pals, gal pals. (laughs) Now I share a body with the clone of me and Phoenix kind of. We are three. Yeah, they have all of the same memories now. So even though Jean isn't either of those people, they have the same memories, which is weird because there's a bunch of weird things that that means that Jean has to remember. For instance, she has to remember having sex with Havoc. So (laughs) that's weird. That's her husband's brother. But Madeline did it, so she has the memory now. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) Anytime characters are sharing a body, I'm like... Yes, I am in, I am in, I am in. More of this, please. Yes, that whole thing basically gets dropped as a plot point, but I think that if you were going to end Madeline's story, doing it in a way that forces Jean to access her compassion and to share space instead of pushing it away, I think is the it's the most Jean slash Madeline conclusion that that story could have. And I feel like she had an arc. As much as I miss Madeline and I always kind of wanted her to stick around, And I think that her and Scott actually had a really interesting and healthy dynamic between themselves before Scott went over and did his Scott stuff. (laughs) (sighs) That guy's a wreck. But yeah, I don't know. I think Inferno handled its deaths that kind of had to happen for the stories to move in a different place. I think that they did excellent with both of those deaths. Amazing. I want to hear as like an artist, Sarah, how do you handle death in your work? I don't usually kill characters in anything. I write a lot of horror, but I don't kill characters because to me, uh, death isn't the thing that's like the scariest. (laughs) I mean, because death effectively is the end of that story, right? But then the stories of other people continue. And sometimes there's something really interesting about that. Mm -hmm. But my relationship with death has always been kind of an interesting one. I think that I try to view it as positively as I can, Mm -hmm. you know, and I just, uh, I don't know, it affects me in a different way. Like loss, I think, is a long-term thing. So most of the time, I just kind of avoid it because to me, it's the easiest thing to do to elicit a response from somebody. And I just don't know that I've ever had it be that pressing that a character died. You know, I, I just wrote that story in like the new flesh or whatever, which was basically a a mother's body growing around a room Mm -hmm. instead of death. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, like like I try to do stuff that's weirder and I guess just, I don't want to really write about death that much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. I, I think I'm like, likewise, I'm like, that's not the most interesting thing to me. Yeah. Um, sometimes grief, like I think there's, there's like a lot of absent, like parental generation in my stories because like that's also my story I think grief in that way that is sustained so I'll have a character who misses a character from a long time ago who passed away because to me whenever I lose people you don't lose them all at the same time and that's kind of what's so heartbreaking about it right is you have that gradual long process of loss of further loss like you don't just lose once (laughs) it's an ongoing loss process and an ongoing grieving process so I think it gets interesting as a creative point morally I'm also just like people should just have to live with their decisions so I always like kind of yeah try to force people to have to live out their full story I guess yeah I like to leave things open-ended I don't always want to make it definitive death yeah (laughs) 
I'm like, I never have death. And then I realized, like, I have, like, a story about, like, an assassin. It's essentially about, like, the assassin conscience and, like, realizing that all the things that she justified for her whole life were, like, you can't justify that. And I don't know. Whatever. It's enjoyable. But I think that I don't like when death is treated super lightly. No. And I think that every death I've experienced has, like, been hugely significant in my life. And I think that, like— we have a culture that's really uncomfortable with grief. I think like that's what I prefer to spend my time portraying is like the grieving process. If anything, is like how do how do we grow through that and how do we, you know, grapple with like the loss of someone we love? Yeah, it takes time for me. Whenever I first lose any person, you know, or a creature that I hold valuable, I guess, which would be most creatures. I have to like think about it for a while and I have to sit with it before I ever actually have a full reaction to it. Yeah. You've pointed out like twice now that grieving is a like long process. Like it's your whole life. And, exactly. <laughs> and I think that if you're someone who's not lost someone, I think that, and in general society wants people to believe that, you just kind of like move on. Mm-hmm. And I have like a very firm belief that you never actually move on. You you learn to live with it. Yeah. Like I, the loss of my father was fucking horrible and I could totally ball my ass out like at the drop of a hat. But I also like have learned to like remember the really amazing things about who that person was to me and to hold like the complicated parts too. Like, you know, all the ways that it was just really fucked up my childhood, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's, I think when, when stories oversimplify trauma, grief, these really complex human experiences, it just cheapens it for me, like, across the board. Suddenly, like, your romance means shit to me. Right. Like, if you can't, if you're going to include death and not include grief, like, you don't get anything, you know? Like, this has to be more weighty than that, you know? Like, the reason I like the Potter story from Killjoys is, like, her boyfriend, Aaron Ashmore, like that defines him for the rest of his life. It doesn't motivate him. It actually again demotivates him. Like right. he becomes very despondent. And his friends like start to move on because again, they're a layer removed from the death. Mm-hmm. So they have a different grieving experience. And he's like, fuck, I can't handle this. And that to me is like, okay, great. And then like three seasons later, he's still fucking broken up about it. And I'm like, thank you. That is what life is like, you know? It is difficult. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just bullshit and hard. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, there's more to it, I think, than we see a lot in stories. And I, I don't know. To me, that's more interesting, I guess. You're here. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Imagine. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Comic of the Week is O Human Star by Blue Deliquanti, Volume 2. Yes, I love O Human Star. I started reading O Human Star when I was... So O Human Star is a webcomic, and it has been collected into two trade paperback volumes. The only one I could find for sale was Volume 2, because I think Volume 1 is out of print, and everybody snapped up a volume. So if you have Volume 1, you lucky duck! It is so good. I love O Human Star. I found it because I was writing an article about kick-ass LGBTQ plus parents in science fiction and fantasy. And I found O Human Star just like Googling and like looking around. And it is such a delightful and fun story. It's about uh, two characters who are lovers, two men who invent AI, and then one of them dies. And then his partner brings him back in a robot body, which is like pretty fucking cute. And they like start trying to figure out their queer thing again, which is really fun. And then they have a android daughter who is trans. She was created to be like the inventor who passed away. So uh-huh. Alistair is the dad, we're going to just call them dads, is the dad who invents AI and then passes away and then comes back as like an android. And his partner, Brendan, is this sort of like ideas man, but Alistair's who actually figured out how the AI should work. It is a super sweet story. It's a lot of talking heads, but it is about queerness. It's about being in the closet. It's about coming out of the closet. It's also about trans identities because their daughter, Sella, was created by Brendan actually to look exactly like Alistair. But then as she came into her own self, she was like, that's not who I am. I am a woman and my name is Sella. And I think it's a huge testament that Brendan's like, okay, that's who you are. I love you. Be you. And then Alistair comes back to life. This kid has been alive for a while, just being raised by Brendan. And he's like, oh, so you were made after me, but you're a, oh, Okay, that's who you are. Be yourself. And it's very, very cool to see these these queer dads who grapple with their own identities and also grapple with their kiddos' identity and always come out the better for it and come out on the, the positive side of things, which is not to say there isn't conflict. It's just that they they find these really powerful ways to work through it that I think is really intriguing. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely conflict. I think that Brendan pushes a little bit too hard in certain parts of it because, you know, that's part of the thing is Alistair back in the day 
was afraid of coming out of the closet. And then in the current day, turns out that resurrecting him via Android doesn't mean that he got over his fears, I guess. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's still him, right? He's not like a new person, really. <laughs> but that's what Brendan wanted. And so, mm. you know, I felt like that was a little unfair of Brendan, but I think that it's an interesting conversation to have. And it's definitely one that the way that it plays out, you know, is telling a story. I thought that it was very interesting to watch Brendan's reactions to that and then to be like, well, I brought you back because of this and this and this. And it's just like, oh, so now there's conditions for the things that you did. <laughs> like, I mean, I think that in certain points I was like, Brendan, you need to step back a little bit. But at the same time, you know, that's true sometimes of us in relationships, right? Like sometimes we'll catch ourselves and be like, you know, I'm really pushing this person way too hard or something. So I thought that that was interesting. And then, of course, you know, he does have a point in a lot of ways because he's just like, we just went through this. You literally died. <laughs> like, And now, right. you know, you, you're still afraid to like hold my hand, you know, all of that stuff. I think that's one of the most interesting tensions for them is like, right. Brendan is now old. He's lived through all of this. He's older. He's like, you've been gone. Like I've been okay with being queer on my own. And he also, you know, was more okay with his identity even before um, oh. Alistair passes away. I just love it. I love it all. It's so, it's, it manages to be so sci-fi and so domestic. So like yeah. about these internal, what I think of as smaller conversations, but the stakes are still super high and it's still full of just humans trying to like figure out how to be together and love each other when the world is is not perfect and, and neither are they, right? Like I just, oh, I love it. I love the art too. I think the art is super, super distinct it definitely feels like Blue Delaquanti's art. And I think it has just really good facial expressions, which I frequently bring up because I, I always think facial expressions are really hard to get right, in my opinion. And when you do, it's just like, chef's kiss. I love it so much. And I think it's clever that Delaquanti uses different shades to communicate if we're talking about the backstory or the present story. And so the backstory is in like an orange shades palette and then the present story is in a blue shades palette. Yes, uh, that for me was confusing in the beginning mm. <laughs> uh, because I, once again, didn't read the first volume. So I didn't have that established for me. Mm. And so that was a little off-putting. But then once I figured it out, I was like, oh, it makes perfect sense. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I was just like, why is it? Is it day to night or what? <laughs> like, I couldn't <laughs> totally figure it out. And then I was like, oh, it's like past to present. I get it now. Great. Um, so, I think yeah, I was... read volume two first as well. And then I went back and read the webcomic from the beginning. I love all the characters. I think they're really rich. One of my favorite characters is Lucille Villa Santos. She is an entrepreneur in the prosthetic limbs business. Mm -hmm. She has a prosthetic limb as well. I think maybe more than one. And yep. it's really cool that she and Brendan have like this really nice relationship. They support each other. They challenge each other. And they get to just really be scientists and nerds together, which is pretty cute to see. She just like nerds out so hard. It's so endearing, you know? Yeah, those were some of the best parts of the book. I mean, it's all about the human relationships between all of these people. And, 
you know, the heart behind everything that they say. So it is a really good book. I think I was mentioning it before we were recording. I saw this for the first few pages was just kind of, oh, is this entire comic just going to be talking heads? I don't know if I can handle that right now. And was just kind of checking out like almost immediately. So I think that it's a testament to how actually good this book is that it pulled me back in so hard because... Yeah, I was just kind of being a punk and just being like, I don't want to read a bunch of people talking for like 90 pages or whatever. You're like cursing and, my name. You're like, Flinor! <laughs> but no, because I'm I'm such a comic nerd that, as you I know. know, I will read any comic and be like, even if I'm kind of mad while I'm reading it, I will still read it and be like, in some ways that was good. You know, like I'll still always think <laughs> yeah. of something good to say, but I will resent it a little bit, right? <laughs> But um, this one, I mean, I, you know, there's nothing to resent. It got so interesting as I was reading it. So, yeah, as I said, just being something that I kind of quickly was trying to, like, write off and be like, all right, how am I going to put a positive spin on this or something? It kind of turned into, like, oh, this is discussing a lot of the things that I have questions about when I read stories like this, you know? Like, this is actually the comic that is filling in a lot of the blanks for a lot of other stories, and it's doing it by focusing on queer characters and queer issues but in this broader sci-fi kind of way and I thought that all of that was just fascinating so totally. yeah I mean I, I, love I, I how went it from grapples with AI and how it grapples with queerness and how it sort of uses one to like play off of the other like I thought that was really really clever oh yeah it's super clever I mean that was kind of the thing and also you just see how much they truly truly love their kid you know you see how much they love each other even though it's hard and like all of that kind of stuff that we really just don't get to see very much you know we have parents you know queer parents like Apollo and Midnighter where you're just kind of like all right but this is still mostly a superhero story (laughs) this is mostly two dads trying to relate to each other and also this broader sci-fi context that is going on that kind of allows to have a deeper philosophical question. So yeah, I mean, this was a really brilliant comic. I thought that it was very well done. Absolutely. You can still catch volume two as a trade paperback, or you can go to O with no H. It's just the letter O, humanstar.com. This is Blue Delaconte's O Human Star. It is a delightful meditation on what it means to be alive. Who gets to be human? Are the androids people? It is really, really fun. And it's in this like hyper queer setting, which to me is always like, yes, thank you very much. Yes. Bitches on Comics is the love of my life. I love this podcast so much. I will be still doing this podcast when I am dead. I'll be doing it on a different (laughs) frequency. It will be kind of weird. But, you know, you'll also be dead probably. So you can join me there. Oh, or you'll have a Ouija board. Oh, yeah. Ouija board, you can tune in that way. That one won't need to be funded because I won't be eating or living indoors. But this one, this one, I live indoors and I eat. Do you live indoors and eat? Oh, God, yeah. You just reminded me. (laughs) Yeah. Ooh, turns out these walls aren't free. And so we really want to keep making this podcast for forever. The way that we're going to be able to continue doing that is to have your support. There are a lot of ways you can support us. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at at bitches on comics. You can rate and review us, but the strongest, most helpful thing you can do is become a patron. 
We have patrons at all levels. So you can join us at $2, you can join us at $20, you can join us at a million dollars. If you can join us at a million dollars, we're going to donate all of that money to help other people. But we appreciate that you're, you know, redistributing some of your wealth. So, you know what? Find us. We're at patreon.com slash bitches on comics. Not only can you support us, but when you do become a patron at any of those levels, you get cool perks. You get reviews of more comics. You get lists of more comics. You get playlists to go with comics. We're talking comics, pop culture, books, movies. We're doing it all. If somebody donates a million dollars, I want to keep 5000 Okay, Sarah, you can keep 5000 I need a car. That makes sense. Okay, thank you, everybody. So we're super excited to have another indie comic review for you all. As you know, we've been doing more of those recently. We're super excited to be able to talk about independent comics and the great creators who are creating stuff that you're not going to see elsewhere. So today we're talking about Noidutu, A Tale of Modern Mythology, written and art by A.P. Delci and Anna Wysik. What so, was your favorite thing about the comic? I think my, ah, there's so many layers, uh, the cat. I really, really liked the kitty in it. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought the panels were used really cleverly, and the way that panels were sort of broken or shifted or took up a different amount of space than, like, the normal spread, I thought looked really, really dope. But my very favorite part, and I'm not great with names of characters, I think maybe her name is Tiger, Mm -hmm. but it's a a female character who is being, someone is catcalling her. And the way that she deals with street harassment is, like, aspirational i wish i could just be like her and snap my fingers and be on my way (laughs) and it's like so cute to see that rendered you know that scene where all of the flesh and organs are ripped from the skeleton and it's just one panel just like oh (laughs) that is a really good panel i mean he definitely was a hard character to like he only shows up (laughs) for one page So considering the fact that that's true, I didn't really feel very bad thinking that it was okay for him to have his flesh ripped from his bones. Absolutely. And and, uh, it looked cool. It looked very metal. This is like honestly one of the- It looked very metal. It's one of the gothest comics I've ever read in my life. Yes, Because it has just, you know, total quiet goth protagonist guy who's- studying trying to work on his thesis and like all interested in mythology and all of that stuff and then by night he goes to like goth clubs and dances and has fun with a lot of other goths and they do things like Bauhaus karaoke and oh my God, it's so funny <laughs> to me that is all what takes precedence there's the idea of him and these demons and etc cetera, etc cetera. that is way more of a subplot in this comic because a lot mm-hmm. of it is just kind of the interactions between characters even whenever you he's talking to like a, a werewolf or whatever it's still about the interaction between them and like the dialogue between them more than I think it's about whatever else is going on. And they have these kind of broken down human moments, you know, where all of this bonkers stuff is happening and he'll be like, all of this bonkers stuff is happening. And then somebody just goes, hey, let's just have a drink about it, goth guy. And like, <laughs> and so, and yeah, you know, it's, 
He's really interesting as a character. I think it's cool whenever there's a guy who gets really jealous of his girlfriend dancing with some other guy or whatever. And his response, the protagonist's response, who is admittedly removed from the situation, is definitely not to, like, slut-shame her at all. And just to be like, well, we're not really here for drama, so I don't care. Because, like, somebody is trying to kind of slut-shame her to him. And so, like, one of the female characters is just, I just don't like her because she doesn't even pay attention to how much this guy is in love with her and all of this. And he's just not really having it. And I thought that that was kind of an emotionally mature <laughs> moment for a comic because usually it's, that's not how this plays out. So sure. I, I liked that he wasn't really taking sides. He becomes friends with the guy like who is upset about the fact that his girlfriend or friend is with another guy. All of that. I thought it was like the character beats that kind of carried it. And of course, the art, which is really beautiful, and Ugh. all of the dots and how the magic kind of comes to life on panel, I think was really interesting and fun to look at. There were parts where it was kind of talking heads for a long time, which is always hard to draw dynamically, but then it would come out of that. Like, it would all of a sudden go to mythology, magic stuff happening, and I thought that those panels were always really gorgeous. Totally. I thought almost every single panel with Tiger is just like beautiful what like she's so cool this is so beautifully rendered her power is like so remarkable and i agree with you one of the notes i wrote to myself was it's remarkable the gradation and the texture that is achieved with the use of like the points yeah i don't think that this would have worked as well as a color comic i always appreciate to see comics that make black and white work specifically because i love Mm -hmm. black and white comics i don't think every comic can be black and white i think some comics actually look kind of bad as black and white comics but this is definitely not the case and this is a case of the black and white format makes it look a lot better yeah and i think given like like we were talking about when when tiger (laughs) basically pulls a willow on that guy and if that had been in color it would have been so much more gory than it was it felt like real retribution in this i actually kind of forgot that's what she had done when i was like i wish i could do that i don't want to like flay everybody but again like don't fuck with tiger she's not here for you you know I'm into it. <laughs> I'm going to say sometimes I do want to do that. Because, <laughs> I mean, after you just have been followed by so many guys, it just seems like the same guy forever. Yeah. And you're just, I don't want to deal with you again. Here's how this one will go. I'll do magic. <laughs> and make yeah, I mean, it would be incredible to be able to make someone just, like, go away who was being, like, violent towards you. Right. Um, So, yeah, I thought this was, like, super cool. I thought the characters were well-developed, and, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. Yeah, so did I. I thought it was pretty good. I read it earlier today, and I think that it stands by itself, you know? It's kind of a very strange comic, and I like to see things that aren't what I normally see, so I liked it. Heck yeah. We are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is b.com. 
T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.